0: This week on Mindful Headlines, I'm tackling a difficult topic, one that often makes us uncomfortable or sad, and that's dealing with grief. It can be particularly difficult during the holiday season. But loss is something that we all deal with at some point in our lives, and today's episode isn't meant to be a downer. Instead, it's almost meant to be a sort of hug if you're dealing with grief. For many people, this will be the first holiday season that they're seeing extended family since the start of the pandemic. And as you know, COVID deaths have been widely reported throughout the pandemic. In fact, just last week, the U.S. Surgeon General warned of a youth mental health crisis, saying more than 140,000 children in the U.S. lost a parent, grandparent or caretaker because of COVID. Even if your loved one died of something completely unrelated to the pandemic, you may have felt robbed of the opportunity to grieve them properly because funerals and hospital visits were so limited. That's why I sat down with Seattle author and mother Paula Becker about her new book on grief. It's called A Little Book of Self-Care for Those Who Grieve. And learning to live with that
1: is just the work of the rest of your life when you've lost someone that you love.
0: She'll share the details of her son's death, and it is an agonizing story, but one that highlights our resiliency and ability to deal with even the deepest pain. Paula shares tips on getting through the holidays and other important dates. And Paula's therapist, Laura Takis, also sits down with us to share her expertise, including how to effectively use journaling as a coping mechanism.
1: Thank you both for being here today. Thank you so much, Jessica, for having us. Absolutely. Thank you.
0: Paula, I want to begin with you. Can you share a little bit for our listeners, a little bit about your story and what happened with your son? Sure. Um,
1: The part of my story that relates to grief is um, centered around my eldest son, Hunter, who uh, struggled with opioid addiction for nearly a decade um, before being killed um, in the summer of 2017. Um, the aftermath of that, of course, is related to the grief of the before. Because when you're grieving, you have someone in your in your life who you love who is struggling um, with something that could kill them. You're always holding that idea as uh, something that is a possibility and hoping that that will not happen. Um, having had Hunter's death actually occur. I began to deal with grief in um, a a much more concrete uh, way, having to come to terms with something that actually had happened instead of the fear of something that might happen.
0: Hunter's death was very sudden, right?
1: Yes, Hunter's death was very sudden. Uh, He was traveling from Seattle to San Francisco, hoping to get a a new start. And he was a passenger on a Greyhound bus. A Greyhound bus left a rest stop early, Hunter was running, trying to get back on and the driver ran over him. So he was killed in a way that was, uh, you know, violent, sudden, unexpected, disfiguring to his, to his body, uh, really something that was a lot to, to, uh, to, to deal with
0: obviously something anyone would classify as just a tragedy. And um, I love, Paula, for you um, to also let us know how you were connected with Laura, and then Laura, if you'll chime in as well. Tell us a little bit about your relationship, since we're all sitting here on a podcast, which means it's a pretty unique relationship.
1: Sure. So um, I wrote a memoir about my years with Hunter uh, called A House on Stilts, Mothering in the Age of Opioid Addiction. Uh, that book came out in the fall of 2019. In the interim time, my husband and I had filed a wrongful death suit against Greyhound Lines, and that was shortly, uh, or not shortly, <laughs> that was excruciatingly slowly uh, proceeding toward what eventually was a two week trial in courtroom in Dallas, Texas. And for me, I felt very like um, I was dealing with grief in my own ways, and I felt like I had ex- learned a lot about how to uh, sit with my own grief through the years with Hunter's addiction. But I found that um, the course of getting ready for this wrongful death suit meant that the story that I was telling myself, right, the narrative I was forming about Hunter and what happened to him and what was going on in the last hours and days of his life kept getting shifted because I would get information from someone sitting next to him, someone sitting down the other side of the bus and, it was really uh, it, it de- dementing to me. I mean, it really brought me to my knees. And I was aware of uh, Virginia Mason Hospital's grief and loss services. Just as a member of the community, I was aware that it existed, and so I reached out to uh, that department. and Laura uh, was able to work with me as a client, uh, as my therapist, and it was incredibly important to me. and, and I don't know what shape I would be in at this point in the world if I hadn't had access to that kind of detailed therapy with someone who couldn't, who was not surprised or shocked by the things that uh, were surprising, shocking and horrifying about my story.
0: And Laura, tell us a little bit about the work that you do and then in particular, um, with, with Paula, because I know um, Paula has allowed you to be on this podcast with us to explain a little bit and share some insight into how to deal with such a traumatic loss like this.
2: Absolutely. So we focus on, in my program here, we focus on, on those bereaving a sudden traumatic death, which Hunter's death absolutely was. And oftentimes people come in with multiple deaths. And so Um, There are a few things that we really focus on, which Paula was very unique in that she, as she just described, she came in having done a lot of work around the imagery, the traumatic images that continue to come to her, which is one of the primary reasons why people come to us. They can be horrifying, overwhelming, and just don't know what to do with them. And I think one of the things that Um, why we worked well together, as she just said, is that I was just there to hold it, to hold it with her, to say that what she is feeling, you know, this is not you going crazy, that it makes perfect sense why you are experiencing it emotionally, cognitively, physically, because of the horrific nature of his death. So our work primarily focused in the beginning on the imagery And then we sort of shifted and started to um, talk more about his life and who he is, who he continues to be to Paula and to her, uh, to his family and really his
0: community, larger community, because he really meant a lot to a lot of people. Paula, I want to talk a little bit about your book, the most recent one that you released. It's called The Little Book of Self-Care for Those Who Grieve. And um, I read it. I have it here. I know our listeners are not going to be able to see it. It's (laughs) such a beautiful book and um, there's watercolor in it and it's written with these pretty short sentences and they're really manageable. I'm assuming that you did that intentionally. And um, will you tell us a little bit about the book and when you decided to write it and if it was during the pandemic?
1: Yes, absolutely. So, I mean, I'm a writer, and when I'm processing something, I usually process it through words. Although the work I did with Laura was through through imagery, but after Hunter had been killed, I, you know, went through the kind of um, search for something to help me out. And of course, as a reader and as a writer, I looked to books, and I found that there were a, quite a lot of grief books, but they were just big books you know with a lot of words and a lot of words on every page and when you've been recently been bereaved and you're overwhelmed and you're crying a lot and your eyes hurt because they're all salty and dried up you know i just felt like i wanted something i wanted a book that was almost giving me the experience of like a children's picture book and and as i began to sort of come around to that idea i thought of that feeling of being a child on someone's lap or being a parent, holding a child on your lap and going through something together. And I wanted a book that would be something like that for, for grievers of all ages. And the idea that in the beginning, that what you're doing is saying to this person, this person who you loved is gone and they will not come back. And that is, that's full stop. That's the whole beginning of the book. And learning to live with that is just the work of the rest of your life when you've lost someone that you love. Um, the idea of having illustrations that were watercolor illustrations, that were gentle on the eyes, that you could just look at even in your deep grief without, you know, you could rest your eyes on them. Really, that was the goal, just that you could rest for just a second on something that, that didn't hurt, right? Um, And I wanted the book to be small, it is a five by seven, it was truly a little book uh, that somebody could carry with them in their purse or their hand or their pocket or, you know, keep on their nightstand, Uh, maybe read a page a day if that was all that they felt like they could take in or maybe read the whole thing, you know, that it would be useful for all kinds of people in all kinds of grief. And it's not a how-to manual for Surviving and You know, it's a book that helps sit with the reality of this bereavement. And that really is the only goal uh, to be a hand to hold for people who are grieving.
0: Um, when we were first talking about doing a podcast together, I think I reached out to you, Laura, and we were talking a little bit about how the pandemic has been so difficult for so many families and a lot of families have experienced grief during the pandemic. But last year, everything was shut down. Um, we had really um, muted ceremonies, whether they were you know, celebrations of uh, new weddings or whether they were funerals, where it was limited in capacity, and we weren't doing family gatherings. And this is going to be the first holiday season where a lot of families are truly getting together, especially with extended family. And we talked a little bit about how rituals and um, certain things that we do as a society can mark the presence or the loss of our loved ones. And um, I wanted to get a little bit from you. I know that um, Paula, your son's death was not pandemic related and it was a few years ago, but I think the emotions that a lot of people are dealing with are very similar. So Laura, can you give me a little bit of insight on that and what what you've seen during the pandemic, especially as it relates to grief?
2: Absolutely. And and a lot has been written and a lot has been talked about that these rituals that for some people um, might be um, the beginning of their grief process. It might be the middle. It might be some sort of um, way that people find um, a a tab of closure, whatever closure might mean for them. Uh, So these rituals... Um, not only perhaps going to the hospital while they're in the dying process or going to the um, medical examiner's office to view the body, going to the funeral home. These have all been taken away and how uh, life can seem like it is on hold. Their grief is on hold until these, some of these things um, that were taken away or were put on hold um, during the pandemic are then realized, particularly a funeral or a celebration of life. I think that going into the, uh, the holiday season and things are kind of, families are gathering, things are opening up, that can also create a lot of anxiety that I don't think is really talked about a lot, but I'm hearing a lot from, from my clients that anxiety about um, I haven't had the opportunity to get out socially and now what do I tell people? How much do I tell? Who do I tell about my loss? How am I going to feel when I'm talking about it? If people ask questions. Uh, So for some people, the pandemic on some level was a bit of a protective bubble and they could uh, being able to manage um, when and how they told people, how much they told people because the expectations that people weren't getting together and so social gatherings were not happening and so the questions didn't come. And now that um, things are opening up, I'm hearing frequently that there's a lot of anxiety around this.
0: Paula, how do you feel about the holidays when it comes to the loss of your son? You know, it's
1: it's complicated and layered uh, with different memories of the years of Hunter's life, times that holidays were wonderful when he was doing well um, and maybe in some version of recovery. Um, and then times that were terrible, uh, particularly the last time that Hunter and my husband, Barry and our other two kids, Sawyer and Lily were all together was on a Christmas Eve, the, uh, year, you know, six months or so before he was killed. And and it was, it was terrible. He, he had taken something and it just got worse and worse as the night went on. We were trying to cook dinner together. So I have a lot of, um, you know, kind of, received um, and remembered trauma around that. In terms of Christmas itself or Thanksgiving itself, I also have just wonderful memories of him as a little boy. And I feel like that for me, I have this this double job, one of which is just holding the memories that I have and letting them be there, the good ones and the hard ones. They're just there and just being present with them. And the other is, is trying to you know, be joyful for the people in my life who are alive and who are, yes, have grieved with me and are in their own ways grieving, but also, you know, y- young people in their twenties who are doing well and happy and have, you know, boyfriends and, you know, like just to be present in the moment of that, to hold the, the past of the, uh, and that grief and to be present in the beauty and the joy of the moment. And I do feel like, um, The Laws of Hunter has really taught me a lot, I think, about being compassionate and compassionate to the people who come to me in the world who I know have their own grief, compassionate to my family members, my children, my husband, and to myself. And I think during the holidays, everything is heightened. And it's even more important to just say, this is a choice. I don't have to make this big, I can let this be simple. And if that's comforting to me, and for me, it is just to do that, you know, the stakes are actually lower than the holidays would make us think the stakes are in terms of what we do. I think how we do it is much more important and how we are with the people who we love is much more important. And I can say that the memories of the times that we're good with Hunter on the holidays are some of the ways that are helpful to me. And I, you know, we don't know how long we have with the people we love. And there's nothing like being traumatically bereaved to teach you that. So the moment is very precious.
0: Um, Apart from telling readers to breathe in your book, you have a lot of other tips and including um, creating your own rituals. Maybe they're apart from the holidays. And then I also noted that you wrote about writing a letter to your loved one. Um, What are some of the tools that have helped you?
1: Um, What's really been helpful to me. I mean, I write down all my dreams about Hunter. I don't have them as often as I did, but I'll turn on the light in the middle of the night and write them down. And I feel like that's something that's been helpful. It's like this collection of of these encounters, whatever they mean. I also have developed rituals that have to do with his birthday and with the day that he was killed. And they're they're very specific. Just in brief, the birthday one involves um, putting little beautiful stones in playgrounds and parks um, that he played in as a child. Because I remember when he would find something like that, like, you know, he would just be like, delighted oh my god look what I found and so the idea of being able to give another child that that um, pleasure and I say a little a little thing about Hunter and in his memory when I do that Um, and then the other thing on the day that he was killed my husband and I have a practice of going to a bookstore that has a good children's department and picking out 10 or 12 uh, children's picture books, beautifully illustrated, um, very inclusive. And then we donate those to um, an organization that teaches uh, you know, reading to either children who are coming in from another culture or recent immigrants. Uh, and that is just a really sweet way on a really hard day to do something I mean Hunter loved to read we read to him just I can't even tell you how many hours a day when he was little and so that's a way to touch touch that thing and do something that we know is going to be sweet and it's really fun to look at picture books and that's pretty much the only day we do it
0: so it's become a special thing those are both really beautiful rituals Um, Laura, can you talk a little bit about those tools that um, Paula's mentioned, you know, creating rituals or creating something um, in memory of someone? And then also I mentioned um, that in Paula's book, she talks about writing a letter. Can writing be helpful and therapeutic? And obviously Paula's written an entire book, but, um, you know, what, how, how and why do those things help? Well, so to your first question,
2: rituals, um, one of the biggest fears for um, a lot of people that I hear is forgetting or even moving on because that connotes some sort of distancing. If I move on, then does that mean I'm forgetting him or her? Does that mean I'm letting them go? Does that mean I'm betraying them? So I do a lot of work around, okay, then how do you stay connected? How do you want to stay connected? What do you want to continue to carry of him or her as time goes by? So we have a lot of discussion and a lot of creativity comes in. Um, Paul is a great example of that. And a lot of my other clients based on, you know, interests or things they've done in the past, things they've heard or read about. They're like, I want to try this because I think he would like this. I think she would like this. And so rituals, Particularly around the holidays, I ask uh, I ask my clients, "How do you want to include him or her in your celebration or in the holiday?" And I might give a couple of examples, perhaps. Uh, baking or cooking their favorite food, setting a a place for them at the table, lighting a candle, saying a, you know, everybody going around the table and and perhaps sharing a memory. But I have, I make dedicated time to let's look at how do you want to um, invite or to um, have him or her a part of this celebration, this this holiday season and moving forward. Um, And the same thing for birthdays and, you know, every other significant date that they might want to um, carry him or her along. Uh, Writing can be extremely powerful, even though it might for some people feel foreign. This is this is, you know, Paula's backyard and may not be always the case for a lot of my clients, but. what I encourage people to do is buy a special journal for your person so that it it has a bit uh, more emotion behind it, you know, a strong feeling about and dedication to it. And yes, write to him or her, even if it's on the first page, I don't know what to say, I just miss you. And then I always uh, recommend leaving a page for him or her to respond. If he or she were sitting right next to you and they heard you say, I miss you, I don't know what else to say. What would they say back to you? And so this is not only a good way, a good exercise to uh, maintain connection, um, but also to see uh, kind of a record of how the grief and the trauma changes over time, which can be very powerful in the whole healing process because we often feel stuck. There's nothing changing, even though the world continues to move forward. And so um, having kind of a, a record, a written record of, well, is that true? You know, Look back at the first page and look back in the middle of your journal to your person. Is that true? Has your grief changed? Perhaps you're crying a little bit less each day. Maybe you're able now to look at pictures and smile through tears, but remember you know, with love and fo- uh, with fondness. So that that's one of the those are a few reasons why I do absolutely encourage um, journaling and specifically to the person.
1: May I may I jump in? I want to say also that for me, with holidays and Christmas in particular, there's also it's important that you allow yourself to not do things that you that you may have once done and for me, that um, really, (laughs) it's focused around the Christmas stockings, because I made Christmas stockings for each of the kids when they were little, they're beautiful, they're embroidered, they have their names on them. And we have this big, you know, all fun ritual of what was in the stockings. And every year, I worried if one of the candy canes broke, which kid would get the broken candy cane, I thought, Oh, I'll just have to break all the candy canes. I mean, you know, so I had all this mommy energy invested in this. And The first Christmas after Hunter was killed, I said, I can't hang those stockings. And, you know, Sawyer and Lily totally understood that. Plus, they're, you know, they're in their 20s now. They don't need a Christmas stocking. But for me, that was a real piece of it. I said, I can give myself permission not to use these as a decoration because it hurts too much to see that there. And so I might still give Lily and Sawyer a chocolate orange, but I just hand it to them, you know. and at the same time we have a lot of pictures on the christmas tree that are little you know little photographs and stars or whatever of kids at, at the different years or on christmas on different years and those are still there and those are pictures of hunter and those those feel good to me you know so i think we need to give ourselves permission to change things that were rituals and to reassess the rituals every year because there are rituals at the end it's nothing that anybody should be making us do if they're not comforting move on to something else.
0: Um, Laura, I think in one of our previous conversations, we talked about more people seeking help for a traumatic death during the pandemic. Is that correct and why is that? Or you saw people coming or asking for help more quickly than you have seen in the past. Is that true?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think there are a few reasons why um, not only accessibility, telehealth, it allowed people to get on, get seen in remote areas of the state, um, as it were, um, where we're we at. Um, and also feelings of isolation, to to sit alone in your living room or in your bedroom, even if there are other people in the house, um, and you don't have your normal go-tos to release, like going to the gym or going to um, the park or you know, fill in the blank. When those things are taken away, um, people realize they need them, and so I think that that was another reason why people were coming to counseling sooner, because they their other outlets had been taken away.
0: Um, Paula, you uh, well, as Laura said, writing is in your wheelhouse. I know you wrote to comfort yourself after Hunter's death. Is there anything that you did completely differently that is now a part of your life, a new hobby, something new outlet that you picked up since his death that was yeah, to you? Absolutely. I
1: almost immediately after he was killed, I started swimming mm-hmm. and I, I hadn't swum before. I mean, I knew how to swim, but I, that wasn't a part of my practice. And I felt like I have to do this and I have to do this every day um and it's something about the feeling of moving through the water like that it's difficult and that you're pushing against something but you can do it i mean i've thought a lot about why it's comforting i wasn't thinking that in the beginning and it was really hard when the pools closed down at the beginning of the pandemic and i actually bought a wetsuit and was swimming in Lake Washington, it was so cold. And I could only do it if my husband was there to peel my gloves off of me because I literally couldn't peel the, anyway. I was really glad when the when the pool reopened and I still swim almost every day and it's still really important to me in basically the same way. So, and I also started um taking some drawing classes uh that came out weirdly of the imagery work i was doing that i had already started when i came to laura of just trying to physically understand what had happened to hunter's body and then when i had about a hundred of these pictures that i had worked with with their to the grief i was like well now i'm kind of liking drawing and i could i don't this doesn't have to be about grief and so i started taking some classes and that has become a real joy to me and something that will never be vocational. Um, Unlike the writing that's been my career for 20 years, it's something that I just do because it gives me pleasure. And that came directly out of processing my grief. So I appreciate that.
0: Something else you wrote in your book, and you also wrote it at the end of um, A House on Stilts, dealing with opioid addiction or Hunter's opioid addiction and how you dealt with that as, as a mother, is this idea that there's going to be good days and there's going to be bad days. Will you talk a little bit about that for people that are listening and feeling, oh, I had a really good day today, or I'm not having such a great day today, and I had a great day yesterday, so why is that? And they're kind of processing those feelings.
1: I think early on, you pretty much just have bad days and everybody pretty much knows that, but I, eventually something happens and you have a day where you think, well, wow, this doesn't feel as bad. And it's immediately the impulse is to say, oh my God, how can I be feeling that way? And so my hope is just that uh, it can be okay to feel better that that's not betraying the person that you've lost and that gradually there'll be more good days. And you can say, I still miss my person. I still love them. I'm still, you know, incredibly changed by this loss, but I'm having an okay day and that's okay. And I think the thing that's hard you know, as your grief moves along is that you don't always know when those are going to come. So, you know, anticipating a significant anniversary for me, often the anticipatory period is worse. And then once the day comes, like, I know what to do, I get my rocks and I put them in the playground, right? I have a plan. Um, But what's surprising is when you're just going along and having your normal life and then all of a sudden one day you just feel like gut punched by your grief again. And I think that my point is that that is normal and that is what happens and there is nothing wrong with that. And just like we wake up some days and we're like, wow, you know, the weather's really bothering me. Sometimes your grief is really affecting you and that's okay. And, and just sitting with it and eventually it won't be that way the next day, maybe, or the day after that, that's all okay.
2: Jessica, can I go back to something that Paula was saying um, that, that I have found helpful with my clients is education around what grief can look like. Um, For for the longest time, Kubler-Ross's stages of grief are what people kind of go by and thinking that there are specific stages. And once I get out of that stage, I will move to the next stage and there is an end to it. And for me to provide education around with sudden traumatic death, that model is not what it was developed for. That was developed while people were in the dying process. This sudden traumatic death is something different and the waves will come and your grief will be fluid and you might feel many feelings one day um, and maybe perhaps fewer feelings the next day. Um, and if you do feel more feelings one day, feel more tearful or more missing or more anger, that that's not falling back, which I hear often. I'm doing worse and I'm doing worse than I was because two weeks ago I wasn't crying as much. And so by providing a bit, a, bit of, a bit of normalization, this is what I would expect your grief to look like. And this is fluid. Your, your grief and your trauma, this is fluid. And so it's not a step back. It is part of the process.
0: Can that be true for anyone, whether they've experienced um, the traumatic death of someone or whether it has been a gradual death that they are kind of in Absolutely. The- yeah, absolutely, yeah. Loss,
2: loss is fluid. the The feelings that come after loss, the grief is fluid.
0: And Paul, I want to ask you about that as well because I wrote something down. It was from um, a house on stilts. See, it's the very end of your book, but I thought it was just so beautiful. And then also, I I was kind of looking at the connection between your writing that book and the other, the newer one on grief. Um, you said, "I will miss him so much, always." I do not believe that I will ever be done grieving this loss, but I will honor everything we shared, both good and terrible. I hope this will release us both.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I I mean, that's what it is. That's what it is. And I'll tell you, just thinking about memories and holding memories, I mean, his, his Hunter's life and my loss um, of hope for him as a an adult who had a life that made him happy. Uh, that was very difficult. And I, I, I wasn't aware during his life of how much uh, heaviness I was carrying about him and really for him. And I had an experience about a month after he was killed, I was having some, some body work, like a, a massage And afterwards, the therapist left the room and I was lying there on the table and I very clearly heard his voice. And I did hear his voice a lot in in the early months after he was killed. I very clearly heard his voice and he said, you don't have to carry my darkness anymore, mom, carry my light. And I really took that as a mission. And I, I feel that that's part of why I was able to write the book on grief because I I felt there was a need for one because but also I thought that that was a way to help carry his light to help to help use this this very difficult thing but um, to put down the darkness that I had been carrying for him and to come to the world with with the part of him that was light that was a part of me that was helping to shed the light and let him shine the light and be compassionate and that's really the link between those two books.
0: Laura and Paula, thank you so much for your time today. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much, Jessica. This was really wonderful to talk with you. Thank you, Jessica. Once again, that was Seattle author Paula Becker and Laura Takis, a clinical social worker. And for more information on how to find therapy or support, see our show notes. I've also posted links on where you can find Paula's books. Thanks for listening this week to Mindful Headlines and I am wishing all of you a happy holiday season. My goal with each episode is to understand how our minds influence our current events so we can better understand our world inside and out. And as always, a reminder to tell your friends and family about the podcast. And you can catch me on TV on King 5 News in Seattle. I'll see you next time.